welcome, friends, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you're across town or across the globe. That snippet opening tonight's show is called Maria by our friends across the pond. Be optimistic. Well, I saw a great movie I wanted to share with you uh, over the weekend that's not getting enough press. Uh, It's called The East, and if you're a True Blood fan, you might consider it a warm-up for the show returning in a few weeks because Alexander Skarkand, who plays Eric in the HBO blockbuster, is one of the leads, and he's very, very good. It's about anarchists who hold corporate evildoers accountable. Also, watch for Dirty Wars, coming out uh, by New York Times bestselling author Jeremy Scahill on Friday. If you're in Los Angeles, Scahill will be available after the film for in-person Q&A. For more information, check out the Code Pink website or go to Landmark Theaters at the Westside Pavilion. And if you're not in L.A., as I know so many of you aren't, please try to find both films close to home. I think you'll be happy you did. Well, I've been opening the show with some great quotes, and tonight is no different. Here are two from tonight's first guest, world-renowned political dissident, linguist, author, MIT professor, atheist, and self-proclaimed anarchist, Noam Chomsky. Mr. Chomsky said, All over the world, from the popular culture to the propaganda system, there is constant pressure to make people feel that they are helpless, that the only role they can have is to ratify decisions and to consume. And his other quote, the more you can increase fear of drugs and crime, welfare mothers, immigrants, and aliens, the more you control all the people, unquote. That probably gives listeners a bit of an idea of the direction my conversation with Professor Chomsky will no doubt take. I'm looking forward to my chat with him in just a brief few minutes. Then, as we cross the threshold into the second half of the show, musician and author Lane Redman is back on the show discussing her upcoming online course, and we'll ask her how her Preserving Women's History project is coming along. But first, let me make sure you've not missed my last few shows. Please check the archives for my conversation with Matthew Fox former Catholic priest on the new Pope, and how the Vatican, CIA, and President Reagan joined forces to thwart liberation theology in Latin America. And Father Roy Bourgeois is out of seclusion after being excommunicated by the Vatican last November for supporting equality within the church and women's ordination. I'll check in with him, and uh, you won't want to miss the interview on the real name of God and oneness consciousness with Rabbi Wayne Dosick. And please stay with me after my first interview. You'll want to hear about those bees buzzing around in my bonnet tonight. I want you to know about the Popular Resistance website uh, where you can stay hooked in to what's going on around the world and maybe find out how you can get involved. Also, Women's Ordination Conference has put out a notice today that Father Helmut Schuler's Uh, has uh, put out a call to disobedience regarding women's ordination. Uh, There's great news for Planned Parenthood. You'll want to know what Monsanto has managed to get past Congress. And we'll also uh, go abroad for some news and talk about El Salvador's Supreme Court denying a life-saving abortion to a woman using the rationale the rights of the mother to life do not take precedent over those of her unviable 26-week-old fetus. That could be the law here in some states if some Congresses get their way. So stay tuned. But uh, turning my attention to tonight's first guest, let me tell you a bit about Professor Noam Chomsky. If by some uh, chance you have not heard of him and his lifetime of achievements, 
Uh, Professor Chomsky was born on December 7, 1928, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He received his Ph.D. in linguistics in 1955 from the University of Pennsylvania. And during the years from 51 to 55, he was a junior fellow of the Harvard University Society of Fellows. The major theoretical viewpoints of his doctoral dissertation appeared in the monograph Syntactic Structure in 1957. This formed a part of a more extensive work, The Logical Structure of Linguistic Theory, circulated in Mimeograph in 1955 and published in 75. Chomsky joined the staff of uh, MIT in 55 and in 61 was appointed full professor. In uh, 76, he was appointed institute professor in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy. He's lectured at many universities here and abroad and is the recipient of numerous honorary degrees and awards. He's written and lectured widely on linguistics, philosophy, intellectual history, contemporary issues, international affairs, and U.S. foreign policy. Among his recent books are New Horizons in the Study of Language and Mind on Nature and Language, The Essential Chomsky, Hopes and Prospects, Gaza in Crisis, How the World Works, 9-11, Was There an Alternative, Making the Future, Occupations, Interventions, Empire and Resistance, The Science of Language, Peace and Justice, Noam Chomsky in Australia, and Power Systems. Well, Professor Chomsky, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. Thank you for your generosity of your time tonight. I, I really appreciate it. I thought uh, I might start uh, our conversation uh, asking you a bit uh, about your ideas on religion and language and culture before we move on to uh, media and politics. Um, Ariana Huffington's uh, commencement address to Brown uh, recently talked about how uh, success as we know it is no longer sustainable, and we should gauge our success not just by male standards of ambition, money, and power, but also by what we might recognize as uh, what we call female values, our well-being, wonder, wisdom, empathy, what we can give back. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that idea. Well, I would, I would hope that what you're talking about are female, our male values. They ought to be everyone's values. Uh, the idea that uh, we should only be after money and power is a particular form of pathology that uh, our doctrinal institutions try to institute in us, but it's uh, completely inhuman. Uh, uh, people have revolted against it uh, for centuries. Uh, if you go back, to, in fact, it's quite dramatic how they have, uh, including... Uh, some of the early examples are uh, the uh, the early history, well, not so early, but in, in our history, the early history of industrialization of America, uh, you know, about a uh, mid-19th century, mostly in eastern Massachusetts where I am. People were uh, being kind of driven into factories, independent farmers. They bitterly opposed the industrial system. They uh, claimed it was taking away their rights their, as free citizens, their culture, their values. And one of their slogans was, uh, one of the things they uh, most strongly were opposed to is the slogan that they called, gain wealth, forgetting all but self. Mm. They, they considered that a hideous idea. These are, it, it, it did include women like the so-called factory girls, young women from the farms who were going into the 
textile factories, and uh, but it also included uh, you know Irish artisans and coming from Boston, and it was completely it was just across the board, and I think that's normal. That's normal human beings. The idea of being uh, dedicated to just the money and power is really a pathology, and it's been very hard to. That slogan, gain wealth, forgetting all but self, well, there have been efforts to drive it into our minds for 150 years, and people are still well, I think greed is good. Uh, is is uh, more recently, uh, you know, one of the slogans that uh, parallels that. But it used to be one of the seven deadly sins. <laughs> yeah, but it's. I think that's the way people feel. Um, if you took, take a look at, say, workers, still keeping to the working class, that there's no particular reason to keep to that. It's just that it's overwhelmingly male. But the uh, 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 labor actions from early on have uh, uh, used another slogan, that they want uh, bread and roses. In other words, not just enough to eat, but also dignity, uh, control over labor, uh, uh, independence, uh, uh, struggling for the right to control the shop floor, for example, and not to be subjected to managerial control. That's as old as uh, industrialization. So I just don't think it's, you know, I think it's kind of propaganda to call it a male value. Okay. Well, um, in the vein of thought, um, there's a documentary that's begun making the rounds produced by actress Sharon Stone and filmmaker Emmanuel Atier of uh, Wonderland Entertainment called Femme Women Healing the World, and no doubt you've heard the Dalai Lama say it would be Western women who would save the world. I wonder what you think of the Dalai Lama statement and what your views are on feminism. Has it been successful? Should it be a force to help reshape the world toward more justice and equality? Well, it's certainly been highly successful in changing the status of women. I mean, just take the United States and you go back to the say Amer- time of the American Revolution, the colonies. The American law at the time was taken over from British common law, formalized in Blackstone's law, and uh, women ha- had a specific function in that law. They were property. A woman was the property of her father, and uh, that was transferred over to her husband. In fact, one of the arguments at the at the time against giving the women the right to vote was that it would be unfair to unmarried men because a married man would have two votes since obviously the property votes the way Uh. the owner does. And it's taken a long time for that to be cut back. I mean, it was not literally until the 1970s, quite recently, that women had the legally guaranteed right to serve as to serve on federal juries meaning the rights of peers people not just property well that's gone and it's had a big impact in fact of all the activism of the 1960s and its aftermath uh, i think that the uh, change in the status of women has been the most dramatic and the one that's most affected the whole society uh, not just in the right, but going back to your point, not just in the rights of women, but also associated ideas about uh, values that ought to be 
just human values, uh, but through cultural pressures, uh, ideological pressures, and so on, were sometimes associated with women's values. It's unfortunate, though, that uh, feminism gets such a bad rap, though. You know, it's sort of uh, demonized in some areas of our of our culture, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but that's true of every effort to attain justice and equality. Uh, those who were, uh, you know, had holding the whips, if you like, don't like it. Uh, that was true of... Uh, 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 of minority rights, of ending slavery, of uh, I mean, look how the white slaveholders fought bitterly to maintain slavery. Right. In right. fact, have maintained it long, long after the Civil War. Well, fact, I think someone said it would be like uh, for women to gain equality uh, would be like it would unravel the fabric of society. <laughs> It would unravel the pattern, this fabric of patriarchal society. Exactly. But the same was true. The same argument was given, incidentally, about allowing slave, former slaves' rights. It would unravel the uh, structure of civilized society. Right. And well, the, the same is true of children's rights or uh, you know, uh, animal rights. Uh, almost anything. The, yeah, those in, who in were in a privileged right. position are typically going to resist it. Absolutely. Well, you know, we hear about the innate differences sometimes, you know, between men and women, you know, that those ideas are out there, you know, left and right brain thinking, men have more linear vision, uh, women think more peripherally, therefore maybe they think more about the consequences of their decisions on more people. Um, if you if you believe that, then um, wouldn't you say it's vital that we have more than 20% representation of women in academia, corporate America, leaders in religious institutions? And would you be in favor of policies here in the United States like they have in the Scandinavian countries, the 40% solution where corporate uh, you know corporations have to have 40% women in top positions in companies? Well, I'd be in favor of... Uh just equal representation, quite apart from any ideas about uh, innate differences in cognitive and uh, emotional capacities. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't, but that's independent of uh, independent of uh, equal rights. So, say, in I mean, I'm in a university, and uh, it's when I got here 60 years ago, there were practically no women on the faculty, a scattering. Uh, uh, by now, uh, and in the student body, practically zero, uh, maybe none, in fact. And by now, the student body is about half women. Uh, the faculty, it's varied. Like in my department, is half women, women chair. Uh, that's true of many departments. There are some where it's been hard. There have been real efforts to attract women faculty and open possibilities for them. But in some departments, it's just been very hard to do it. Uh, math and physics, particularly. The biology, I think, is quite equal, probably close to equal. Uh, the uh, humanities, probably the same. Uh, there, you could ask why, but it's, uh, there, there have been real efforts. Uh, and, of course, women just... I mean, there are problems in the culture, which it's going to be... You know, which, which, as, when you talk about having laws, rules, uh, maybe it's necessary, 
But the right way to do it is to just overcome the cultural conditions and the social and, and the uh, even legal uh, conditions in the general society that just impose burdens on women. So, for example, in the, you mentioned the Scandinavian countries. Uh, there, uh, uh, the, there's, a different, there's a rather different legal structure in the whole society. So, for example, uh, this, after a birth, there's paternal leave as well as maternal leave. Uh, here, there's no paternal leave and very little maternal leave by comparative standards. Well, you know, if you have both paternal and maternal leave, that overcomes uh, the problem. I think it is a problem that uh, uh, when a couple has a child, uh, the mother has has to take is almost compelled to take uh, primary or maybe all of the care because the man has to go back to work. Mm-hmm. But that's not a. But that's that. It, I think eliminating that makes a lot more sense than imposing. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, num- numbers that have to be satisfied. Right. Maybe and there's just a have lot some of things real like family that. values. <laughs> Maybe just have some real family values. Well, I think it improves families and right. family life. Right. You know, I mean, um, well, uh, my I mean, frankly, I think there are always going to be the effective innate differences. So, you know, no matter how egalitarian, equally a couple treats the child, it's going to be drawn to its mother in a very special way. This. Maybe that's just uh, that's just the way it should be. <laughs> just something well, primal. Well, you know, I I don't think we actually have scientific knowledge of this, but it seems to me very likely okay. from experience as well. You know. Well, myself and my listeners, we're interested in history, culture, spirituality that's been swept beneath the rug, intentionally or not. Uh, sometimes here we call that history. <laughs> because yes. it seems either the conquerors or the men have written most of the history with uh, maybe a, a comparable dearth available on, on women and their contributions sometimes. I wondered if you could speak to how patriarchy and Abrahamic religion has used language to shape society into one that marginalizes women in the feminine face of God. Well, it's, they, they do use language to do that, but I think that's just essentially a reflection of the uh, the cultural practices, the hierarchical structure, the demands, and so on. Uh, these, of course, have been patriarchal religions, uh, and therefore the terminology and uh, so on is going to be uh, that's used, the language that's used, uh, the assumptions that are there will reflect the patriarchal structure. It's, uh, it's true of the Abrahamic religions, all of them. Uh, it's uh, not true cross-culturally, and there are, you know, different, uh, we, we may not call them religions, but different uh, spiritual practices that don't have this distinction. Right, right. Well, uh, speaking of spiritual practices, um, you know, considering the importance of spirituality or religion to so many people, um, would not the world be better off with beliefs that actually revere the earth or which are uh, beliefs that are life affirming inclusive 
Proctor, gender equality, um, some of us call it eco-feminist goddess spirituality, rather than the patriarchal Abrahamic religions that see the earth and animals and women as commodities uh, or here to serve men? Well, I think that any uh, any form of hierarchy and authority, whether it's patriarchal or some other, uh, is, is of has a very it should be assumed to be illegitimate unless it can give a strong argument to justify itself, and that's very rarely possible. I can think of a couple of cases where it's possible, but not many. Uh, it, with regard to, say, concern for the earth and its rights, that's a very significant topic. In fact, the fate of the species may depend on it, uh, and it's kind of striking if you take a look at the I mean, if there's ever a future historian, it's not obvious that there'll be one the way things are going. But if, they, if such a historian were to look back at what's happening on, on the planet right now, uh, uh, he or she would see an astonishing spectacle. Uh, take, say, the, uh, envir- the, the threat of environmental catastrophe. It's very real. I mean, anyone who... Uh, has their eyes open, can see it. If you read scientific journals, it's perfectly obvious. But there's just no doubt that there's a very serious threat, not far removed. And there are various reactions to it around the world. There are some who are trying to do something to impede it. There are some countries uh, which even have uh, instituted rights of nature as part of the legal constitutional system and are uh, there are some, there's one oil producer that's trying to obtain support uh, to keep the oil in the ground, hmm. which is where it ought to be. So that's at one extreme. Uh, uh, at the other extreme, there are societies that are trying to accelerate the race to disaster, uh, to get every drop of hydrocarbons out of the ground, uh, maxima, and are kind of euphoric about the possibilities of uh, using massive amounts of fossil fuels. Well, who are they? Uh, the first ones that are trying to do something to retard the threat of catastrophe and that are insisting on the rights of nature are the societies that we call primitive, indigenous societies, tribal societies, the First Nations in Canada, you know, Aboriginal societies in Australia, uh, Adivasis, um, tribal societies in India, the same uh, throughout, literally throughout the world. That's they're the ones who are trying to save the world. Who's racing towards disaster? Uh, the most, the richest, most powerful, most educated societies. The ones who think of themselves as the peak of civilization, like uh, the U.S. and Canada, uh, which are just there's kind of bipartisan euphoria about what they call a hundred years of energy independence. Energy independence is almost totally meaningless concept. What it means is a hundred years of massive uh, exploitation of hydrocarbons. So just take a look at the world. The most, what we think, what what the ones who call themselves the most advanced, uh, cultured, uh, technologically developed, and so on, are leading the race off the cliff, like proverbial lemmings. They're the ones who they call primitive, backward, pre-technological. They're trying to save the world. I don't think this is a male-female issue. 
No. I think it's a much broader cultural one. That's yeah, something we ought to be very much worried about. Well, and I think it goes back to the idea of greed. Uh, some people also talk about, uh, you know, the the end time theories are in it. You know, they either think God won't allow anything to happen or, gee, if it does, well, we'll meet God. So they don't uh, see a downside to destroying Notice the planet. That, that, that's particularly true in the rich, uh, technologically advanced, uh, uh, most powerful societies. It's most true here, in fact. The end times is mostly a U.S. move. I mean, yeah. it does exist elsewhere, but uh, this is where it kind of originated and flourishes. These are things we should actually. This goes back much farther. Uh, just another part of the kind of general background that we ought to be well aware of, I think, uh, is uh, has to do with uh, Magna Carta. You know, the foundations of Anglo-American uh, law goes back almost 800 years. In two years, in fact, it will be the 800th anniversary. Magna Carta has two parts to it. One part is the Charter of Liberties. That's basically concerned with things like due process and presumption of innocence and speedy trial by peers and things like that. There's another part that's been forgotten. It's called the Charter of the Forest. That's concerned with preservation of what were called the commons, the commons were the common collective property, this is England, of course, uh, of uh, that people uh, uh, nourished, cultivated, cared for. It provided food, it provided fuel, it provided welfare. Uh, for example, the traditional image of uh, widows uh, picking uh, out of the forest, you know, well, yes, that's the part of the welfare system. Uh, uh, this was, and, and the, the Magna Carta insisted that the commons be protected from state authority. State authority meant the king. The Robin Hood myths are based on this. You know, Robin Hood is essentially mm -hmm. prevent, you know, protecting the forest. It's a, what happened to that? Well, what happened to it is that as uh, British capitalism developed, uh, with people driven off the land, uh, becoming the workers instead of independent farmers, the commons being privatized. Uh, uh, th this was destroyed. It happened later here. And it goes right up until today. What I just described is a matter of protecting the commons. It's the indigenous societies that want to protect the global commons, our common property, which we ought to collectively care for. The West, led by us, is calling for privatization of the commons. Put it in private hands. Let people own it. It's not a collective property. In fact, there's even a cultural myth called tragedy of the commons, famous concept, which we're supposed to believe in. Tragedy of the commons holds that if things are collectively owned, they're going to be destroyed. Uh, so therefore, they have to be privately owned so they'll be preserved. How convenient. It, it, yeah, how convenient. <laughs> but if you uh, take a look at the world, it's the opposite. It's when they're privately owned that they're being destroyed. Well, Collectively owned is common forest. property. You hmm? can look at our national forest system as an example of that. Perfect example. You or know. A drill, you know, Arctic drilling uh, anywhere. In fact, there's a striking example of this right at this moment in Turkey. It's all over the front pages. 
take the uprising in Turkey to protect Taksim Square. That's basically about protection of the commons. Taksim Square is the last open public space with greenery, a meeting place, and so on in Istanbul uh, that the public is trying to protect. Uh, the demonstrations in Taksim Square a couple of days ago began when the government sent in bulldozers to knock down the trees in Taksim Square as, a, as part of a plan to commercialize it, uh, to, to turn it into a shopping mall, you know, a tourist attraction, uh, uh, gentrify it, uh, essentially get it out of the public's, keep push it, out, put it out of the public domain. That's that's a struggle that goes back 800 years, and right now the fate of the species depends on it. These are not small questions. No, absolutely not. And it, you know, and it's quite a shame that uh, these uh, these rich and powerful have spent so much money to uh, ensure that we have so much disinformation out there. Absolutely, they're the ones who control the means of, uh, you know, the means of so-called information. It's uh, it's something we really have to struggle against. And I'd say again that you know, while there may very well be, I'm sure there probably are uh, values and emotions and so on that are uh, more typically feminine than masculine. Maybe that's true, but these things that we're talking about aren't. So, for example, in Taksim Square, it's you know, it's men and women. Take a yeah, look at the pictures the in the newspapers. You know, yeah, the, the uh, indigenous the... people who want to give rights to nature are no more uh, women than men. You know. Right. Um, well, you know, we're sort of uh, just sort of naturally segueing into media and uh, politics here. Um, Another question on language. Do you think the lack of civility in the media, the hate-mongering of some religious institutions towards certain groups, even between politicians, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's and Glenn Beck's of the world, that they set a tone perhaps and give license to throw manners and civility under the bus and sort of leaves us with a society that mimics their bad behavior rather than talking about real issues and facts to help move us forward? Or do you think it's all a distraction? Well, you know, it's very striking. I mean, it should be studied more. I haven't really seen a good study of it. But if you go back, say, uh, 50 years, 45, 40, 50 years, there was talk radio, not not on the scale that there is now, but there was there. And it was much more varied. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it probably tended towards uh, uh, nationalist, uh, you know, right-wing, uh, and so on, what you're describing, but it wasn't. But it was much more varied. Now, over the years, that's changed, and it's been taken over, not just by right wing, but by extreme right wing. Mm-hmm. I mean, way to the right of the Republican Party, for example, except in its current manifestation, the established Republican Party. Now, how did that happen? Uh, I don't think it happened by accident. I, th- I think what happened if. It, I haven't, I, guess, and I haven't seen a good study, so I'm kind of speculating. But apparently what, seem, what seems to have happened is just uh, a concentrated wealth that took this over. Uh, and it's pretty easy to take over a radio station. You just have to offer them advertising. Now, these are you know, they're commercial institutions, but they run on a 
very narrow profit margin. If they can be guaranteed advertising, they'll take the program content. And there are packages that come to small st- to stations and say, we'll guarantee you this amount of advertising if you put on the content we want. Well, who's going to be behind uh, 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 providing content of the kind that you see right now? Rush Limbaugh, uh, Laura McLaughlin, uh, you know, the rest of them. Uh, well, you know, it's not going to be, uh, 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 it's not going to be, say, um, uh, uh, people Club. like you and me, you know. <laughs> well, um, I, I wonder if there's an innate political grammar in, in the human mind that influences politics. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, again, Fox News, you know, Frank Luntz, the GOP wordsmith who advises on talking points to sort of influence Americans to vote against their economic interests. Do, do you think historians will look back and say uh, that this daily dose of propaganda uh, helped brainwash people and maybe even helped Americans destroy themselves and their futures? That's exactly what's happening. But the, the, whole, the whole history of propaganda is pretty interesting. Uh, how, modern propaganda, which is a huge industry, I mean, the public relations industry, the advertising industry, is basically propaganda. And, in fact, in the early years, that's what they used to call themselves. Uh, up until the, 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 ni- the, second world, the 1930s, the Second World War, gave the word propaganda kind of you know, negative uh, connotations so people, because it was associated with the Nazis and so on. Uh, so people stopped using it except for the propaganda of enemies. But if you go back to the 1920s, the founding documents of the public relations industry had titles like propaganda. Uh, they recognized that what they're doing is propaganda. Well, we're uh, controlling attitudes and opinions, in other words, uh, 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 driving people towards what they called the superficial things of life, like uh, 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 fashionable consumption. And the idea was very clear. Uh, this, this, these huge propaganda systems, public relations industry, uh, they began in the most free societies at that time, Britain and the United States. That's where the origins of the systems were. And there was a good reason. In these societies, enough freedom had been won uh, so that it was getting hard to control people by force. And therefore, you had to turn to other means of control. Natural ones are control of... Uh, opinion and attitudes, opinion and behavior, you know, intentions to act. And out of this developed the modern commercial advertising system, uh, which then became a much broader system of propaganda. And incidentally, this was advocated by progressive intellectuals, uh, people like uh, Walter Lippmann and uh, Harold Laswell and others. Uh, but what were their think- what was their thinking that it couldn't hurt or? No, their thinking was. I mean, they're very. You know, these are guys who write books about the democratic theory, so we know their thinking. Their thinking was that. Um, I'll quote. The thinking was that the public are uh, ignorant and meddlesome outsiders, mm. and that for their own good, uh, policies and decisions have to be in the hands of responsible men, always men, responsible men like us, because we're the smart guys. We're 
the best and the brightest, and we know what's good for people. And as one of the founders of modern political science put it, uh, Harold Laswell, who, again, a liberal, you know, Roosevelt, Wilson, Kennedy-type liberal, uh, his view was that we should not succumb to democratic dogmatisms about people being the best judges of their own interests. (laughs) They aren't. We are. Uh, We're the people who can uh, make decisions that are best for everyone. You'll hear this right up to the present, incidentally. It's uh, part of the argument given for uh, 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 concentrating power in power to make decisions in the hands of elites. Well, I mean, we see what Republicans are doing trying to thwart the uh, African-American vote. Uh, I mean, I even heard a Republican on television say, uh, it, it, they, women should never have gotten the vote. <laughs> they're disturbed. Yep. Well, they're supposed to be property, after all. It's right. not that far back, you know. Right, right, the, right. This is uh, recent liberation. It takes a long time for it to kind of enter into general consciousness. And it will be resisted, as you said before. Well, news is lumped with entertainment now. News agencies uh, don't have to tell their listeners the truth. Um, where do you get your news? Who, who do you trust? You trust your own critical intelligence. It's actually the same when you're doing scientific work. You can't say I mean, you, you may know that certain people have a have a history and a reputation for being uh, accurate and insightful, so you'll tend to believe them if it's not something that particularly concerns you. And it's pretty much the same when you read the newspapers or whatever you're looking at. You just ultimately have to rely on your own uh, uh, critical, analytic abilities to uh, discern what's probably significant, what's uh, taken out of context. Uh, uh, We have many means to check and evaluate. But don't you think, though, um, Noam, that... America's gotten pretty dumbed down that some people don't even have critical thinking skills anymore. They don't know when they're being duped. Yeah, and I think that there's a tendency for that to correlate with, uh, this may sound strange, but I think it correlates with education. Actually, there's strong evidence for it. So take, say, the main, take the main domestic issue that's under debate in the United States. Let's just look at that one. Uh, the main domestic question is uh, how do we deal with uh, the current uh, economic crisis? Okay, and there are two views on this. One view is that the main problem is the lack of jobs. The second view is the main problem is the deficit. Well, who holds those views? The general public, you know, the unwashed masses, uh, their view gener- over quite substantially, is the big problem is jobs. Uh, if you go to the wealthy and the banks, uh, they, for them the problem is the deficit. Uh, which is being discussed? Um, we have a sequester now. Is it about lack of jobs or is it about the deficit? Yeah, it's about the deficit. They're the, and who's right in this, incidentally? My view is the public's right. Uh, the big problem is jobs. Deficit is not a big problem. It is a problem for, say, the banks. They don't like the idea that maybe ultimately there'll be inflation. But for the benefit of the entire economy and for the the people who live here, 
which after all ought to be our priority, the problem's lack of jobs. That's cutting back economic growth. It's harming lives seriously. It's uh, for young people, giving them an extremely uncertain future. It's uh, uh, destroying the lives of older working people who are being, you know, cashier thrown out. That's the main problem of the society, even on pure economic grounds. Now, the deficit isn't, but it's the deficit that dominates discussion and debate because that's the concern of the uh, more wealthy, the more privileged, the financial institutions, and so on. And so it is a good example of how the uh, education negatively correlates with uh, uh, sensible positions, and it's not the only case. Well, in, in missing from the conversation, it seems to me at least, uh, we see what austerity is doing in Europe. Um, it, it, it's not working over there, so why try to repeat that here? It's, Simply because in fact, it's a disaster in Europe, worse than here, in fact. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it is what the the big, especially the Bundesbank, the, the German banks, the were dominant there, and the uh, uh, central bank, European Central Bank, have been pushing, and they keep pushing. I mean, they're kind of backing off now a little bit because the effects were so awful. But they've, and if, and I think part of the reason is that uh, what I just mentioned, they are concerned about potential inflation. There isn't a sign of it, but conceivably it might happen someday, and they want to uh, uh, they want to ward that possibility off. Uh, but also we shouldn't overlook the fact that they have direct, the wealthy and the privileged have direct gains from it. This was, in fact, described by the president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, uh, who's one of those who's more opposed to austerity, incidentally. But he described to the Wall Street Journal in an interview the effect of the austerity programs. And what he said is, the European social contract is obsolete. We're, we're going to get rid of the welfare state. It's one of Europe's great contributions to modern society, modern civilization. But it's true, it gets dismantled as you uh, impose austerity. Growth goes down, the deficit goes up, people are thrown out of work. Uh, this the, the generation of the young generation, there's no prospects. Uh, but you do get rid of the uh, welfare, uh, to, uh, reduce the welfare state, which the wealthy and privileged never liked in the first place. Um, there are but class the transition is, is savage, though. I mean, you know, people. I mean, I use the expression, uh, people are going to be living under bridges. But what do they? How do they expect people to survive if there are no jobs, or they just really don't care? Well, you know, it's not that they they want. I'm mean, take a look at the United States. It's. I mean, there are. You know, we're not. It's not as destitute as during the Great Depression. I mean, I was alive then. I can remember it in absolute terms. It was worse, but it's pretty bad now. But, you know, for the majority of the population, uh, wages and incomes have virtually stagnated for a generation. And there's plenty of wealth generated, but it's going into very few pockets. And for the very wealthy, that's fine. Well, um, shifting gears a little bit, um, yeah. I, I saw your quote. Uh, in the U.S., there's basically one party, the business party, but it has two factions, Democrats and Republicans. 
which are somewhat different but carry out variations of the same policies. Well, I wonder, considering the um, this new Republican Party, the extremism, the, uh, the obstructionism, not to mention their blatant homophobia, anti-intellectualism, anti-woman, anti-worker, anti-immigrant, anti-science ideologies, um, the lack of empathy, um, do you still see both parties as two sides of the same coin, or is that maybe a false equivalency now? Yeah. Actually, that quote, which goes back to the 1950s, uh, was accurate then. I don't think it's accurate now. I think now we have one party, the business party, with only one faction. The faction is moderate Republicans who call themselves Democrats. But if you look at the positions of the Democrats today, they're approximately what we would have called moderate Republicans not many years ago. Right. Uh, the Republican Party itself has given has abandoned, uh, except for a small fringe, the moderate Republicans. It's now a party, and it's a very unusual parliamentary party, not like the kind that we've had in the past or in other countries. It's almost in lockstep obedience to great wealth and private power uh, and the corporate sector. Uh, that's its one position. And in order to, you can't get votes that way. So in order to have a voting base, it's been compelled to turn to the kind of groups that you were describing, uh, the religious right, uh, uh, the nativists who are terrified that somebody's going to come and take something away from us, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of the kinds of characteristics that you were describing, what you hear on talk radio. It's been forced to mobilize them. There's no other way to get a voting base. You can't mobilize people on the basis of saying, look, we're going to try to impoverish you and, uh, and uh, benefit the wealthy. So and at least a very It's a deliberate strategy. Well, you can call it deliberate or whatever you want, but it's it's a natural consequence of moving positions towards uh, what I described, lockstep right. service to concentrated wealth. And it is lockstep. So the Republican Party now has a kind of a catechism that everyone has to repeat. Otherwise, you're not part of the system. I right. mean, there are real reasons behind these tendencies. Part of them have to do with major changes in the economy since the 1970s. The economy became financialized, you know, financial institutions got vastly more important. Uh, 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 production was substantially offshored, which taxed the working class. Uh, there was a spectacular increase in the price of elections, which drives both parties into the same pockets. You know. So this general drift kind of to the right towards subordination to concentrated power. That's why the, I think it would be accurate to describe the contemporary Democratic Party as essentially moderate Republican in traditional terms. And the Republican Party is just driven off the spectrum. So uh, I'm sorry, what, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave. I have another interview okay. coming right now. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for, uh, yeah. for your time, Professor. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, good. It was good to talk to you. Yeah. Okay, good night. Night. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. We didn't get to all the questions, but uh, we did get to a lot. 
Well, we are about to uh, cross the threshold into uh, the second part of the show. And um, I am going to let you listen to uh, some music from um, Lane Redman, and uh, she will be with us in just a moment. So let's see. Uh, Lane has some uh, wonderful music she's provided us here. Uh, I think we'll go with uh, her B mantra, uh, because that's what she's going to be talking about when uh, when she comes on the line. She's going to be talking about her B priestess uh, curriculum that's coming up, as well as uh, her Preserving Women's History Project. So please enjoy this uh, while we get Lane on the line.
Elaine, is that you? Yes, Karen, can you hear me? Yeah, I sure can. I okay, can hear you great. fine. We were just playing your B mantra music as we <laughs> waited for you to call in. Okay, dear. Great. Well, it's good to uh, good to have you back, Lane. Um, what can you tell us about the uh, ancient traditions of the bee priestesses, that uh, online curriculum you're about to start? Well, I can't. I first started coming across information about them when I was researching the ancient women frame drummers in the Mediterranean world. And uh, the first pieces of information came in terms of their names. A lot of these women frame drummers were called the Melissas, which is ancient Greek and Latin for bee. And in the Hebrew lands, they were called the Deborahs, which also means bee or swarm of bees. And then over the years, it was as if I was, putting together pieces of this ancient puzzle um, about the bee. I started to find out that many of the goddesses that were portrayed with frame drums were um, in their most primordial form a bee goddess like Aphrodite and Tripoli and Artemis. And let me just say, maybe because some of your listeners may not know what frame drums are, but that's a drum whose diameter is much wider than the depth of a shell. A drum today that most people would be familiar with is a tambourine. But frame drums uh, don't necessarily have to have jingles on them. And in the ancient world, the oldest ones probably did not have jingles. So it started by me tracing and researching these images of these women portrayed with these drums. That's how I got into all that. And then uh, as I studied these images, you know, studied the inscriptions on the vases or on the sculptures or on the temple walls, I began to find out that many of the representations were actually representations of goddesses. And then I began to um, realize that many of the women were priestesses of these goddesses and of some gods like Dionysus is a male god and uh, that's associated with the frame drum as is Bess, um, the small dwarf god from ancient Egypt that protected women at the moment of conception and childbirth. He often had a frame drum and sometimes the Egyptian god Anubis would be depicted with a frame drum. Well, I mostly, didn't know that. I've never seen Anubis with a frame drum. Uh, right, right. I do have uh, an incredible image from the Ptolemaic period in Egypt. You know, um, Lane, let me ask you a question. I'm, I, sure. I'm curious about vibration. You know, the sound that the bees make, that vibration, do you think the frame drum cl- comes the closest to mimicking that vibration? Do you think that's what they were trying to do with the frame drum? Well, that's a that's a very interesting question. Let me come by that answer in sort of a circuitous way because um, I use the traditions that are still intact from India around uh, a bee goddess, Brahmari Devi, um, to piece together a lot of the symbols that I was finding in the ancient Mediterranean world. There was a lot of um, trade and communication between the 
ancient Mediterranean world and ancient India. So they weren't isolated. And I think there was actually a lot of correlation between the cultures and the religious traditions. Um, but in the Hindu yogic tradition, the anahat is the unstruck sound behind reality. It's the um, unhearable sound that brings everything into manifestation. And the texts say that the the audible sound that is the closest to this unhearable sound is the sound of bees buzzing. Hmm. So this is considered in India the the audible sound of this power of creation, wow. the power of consciousness that brings everything into being. And also uh, Kundalini Shakti is often said to manifest in a humming buzz of sound. So also the Anahat is uh, a name for the heart chakra. And then there are all these practices connected to the heart chakra. And the ones that I primarily have studied and connected to these ancient traditions is Brahmari, Pranayama, and Brahmari means bee. So it's this buzzing type of pranayama, rhythmic breathing exercises. And um, there's many different types of Brahmaris, but they're all some type of buzzing, humming sound. Now, in terms of the frame drum, there is a frame drum that still exists today called a bindir, and it's found in North Africa and Morocco, um, and it has a snare, which is like a string along the inside of the head, so that the drum buzzes while it's played. And I actually believe that that drum is a remnant of these angel bee priestesses. Interesting. Well, now you're about to uh, start this online curriculum, The Sacred Path of the Bee, Ancient Traditions of the Bee Priestesses Awakening in Our Lives Today. Um, did you want to tell listeners a little about that and um, when it's going to start and all the details they'd know <laughs> if they want to take part? Well, we are working out the details right now. I'm teaching that with Deborah Roberts, who is a master beekeeper and I started to have many beekeepers coming to my workshops and Deborah and I've been working together for the last three or four years teaching workshops and she's um, from the natural beekeeping tradition and she's just come back I haven't even had a chance to see her yet from Turkey where she was teaching natural beekeeping and meeting all types of traditional beekeepers in Turkey, and she's been invited to come back in August for some very special event that it's very hard to to get invited to go to into a private reserve. And I didn't get all the details, so we are now. Um, it'll probably be a week or so before we actually get the dates together now, because we we're going to start the program in July, and it'll probably run every two weeks, and it'll be on a Thursday night. Okay. Um, yeah, and we have a website called thebeepriestess.com, and it's a six-series. Um, and the first series we've already done, it was the introductory series, which was free, and it's up on that site. So if people want to see that, it's a two-hour program, thebeepriestess.com. 
is the site, and that video is up there. And there's also um, an email list where they can sign up, and they would get the information about the program. Okay. Um, I was hoping we'd get this all nailed down, but she didn't know she was going to be going back to Turkey. And she's just now trying to get her tickets and get all that set up to go back. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, you know, um, tell me if I am, you know, drawing, uh, you know, connecting the dots where maybe they don't connect. But um, I'm getting the idea that maybe this art of uh, beekeeping, being a bee priestess, it's more than just about harvesting honey. Um, there's, uh, you know, is there some sort of transformation that happens to bee priestesses? I mean, is there something spiritual going on as well as just doing agriculture? Well, that's certainly what people like Deborah Roberts thinks. And most people feel transformed by the keeping of the bees. And I began to recognize many of the symbols that I found connected to the frame drums as I began to know beekeepers and, you know, hang out with them and see the insides of the hives, you know, and see the queen's cone that the bees build um, that looks remarkably similar to the stone at Delphi. And the stone is the um, naval... Uh, the stone at the navel of the world, right? And yeah. so you begin to see, and the, it's also always been considered a beehive. So I have, I don't know. It's almost know. like we're 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 trying to uncover those secrets. We, well, you're, it's you're, the roots of religious thinking, I think. And the thing is that Deborah, this is her forte of talking about this, but to. For many of us who have studied yoga and meditation for many, many years and we're trying to be more conscious and be connected to everything around us in the present moment, well, this is the behavior that you're forced into by the keeping of bees. You can't go into your bee yard if you're all in a distracted, hurry state and or you're emotionally disturbed, you have to go in there in a peaceful, grounded way so that you don't disturb the bees, that you're connected to everything. And if you if you don't do that, then you're going to get stung. It's sort of like the bees force you into this spiritual state that many of us have spent years of trying to being grounded right right yeah yeah, to try to do meditation cut our thoughts and i spent a lot of time sitting and just listening to the buzzing of the hive do you think it's trans-inducing could you listen to the humming absolutely absolutely and the the cd that you were playing um every one of those pieces the the pitch center of each piece is the buzzing of bees and I went to Deborah's bee yard and recorded the bees and you know they sort of they sort of hum in B flat is sort of, sort of a little <laughs> yeah so so listeners should know that was real bees that was not an artificially generated sound no 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 these are the real bees but there's different states and they sound different you know in different different states so they could be more upset they can have a more loud and harsher kind of buzzing, humming sound. So each piece on the album is different, but there's 20 minutes of just the sound of the bees 
um, buzzing, and it's a very, very powerful sound. I use that in most of my retreats as a background for meditations and experiences mm-hmm. that we have in the workshops. Well, and as I was listening to it, uh, if I wasn't here doing the radio show and had to be focused on having conversation, um, I mean, I, I just wanted to, like, get up and move, you know, just sort of sacred movement. It's just sort of elicits that from you, I think. Well, certainly I heard many melodies in the hummings of the bees, and that's where all these different songs came from on um, Hymns from the Hive. They were the actual melodies that I could hear in my mind as I listened to the bees humming. But here's a little piece. It's hard. The the kind of information that we're going to show on this broadcast, because it's visual, you'll be seeing a lot of slides. You'll be seeing the slides, and you'll be seeing these symbols that I'm talking about. Um, But so I'm going to tell you something a little complex, but there with a friend there's a scale, an ancient Phrygian scale connected to the frame drum that many of the songs um that were played by these priestesses would be in this ancient Phrygian scale. It's different from the uh Phrygian scale that's sort of known today. But I, it's been interesting. When I play the frame drum, that's the scale that I hear. So many of my pieces are in that scale. People are not, if they want to hear what that scale is, uh, there's a piece called Uma. Well, you were just playing it also, the mantra of the bee goddess. That's mm-hmm. that scale. Mm-hmm. And um, there, if I worked for many years, and I still do work with Amit Chatterjee, who's this amazing sitar guitarist and singer from India and he's been on a lot of my projects and we've worked on a lot of the spiritual backgrounds to many of the projects um, but anytime he would be playing the sitar and I would really love what he's doing I'd go what raga is that and he says it's Bhairavi so I always loved Bhairavi so I there are yantras these geometrical um representations of gods or goddesses or states of mind in the yogic tradition. So there is a yantra for the bee goddess, Brahma Devi. So I and it has Sanskrit on it, which I can't read. So I send it to Amit and ask him to interpret it for me. And he wrote back, This is Bhairavi Devi. You know, this is the goddess of the Raga that I love. And it's also, now here's the other interesting thing about it, Bhairavi is also this ancient Phrygian scale. So that was really profound to me because this is the scale that I hear in the frame drums. This was connected to the ancient bee priestesses. And it's also the sound of Brahmari Devi, Bhairavi. You know, so, let, let me let me ask you about the bees and Artemis. Um, I knew about the bees, you know, associated with uh, you know the the Melissae and everything, and and you mentioned the Deborah, but I you know I've never heard so much about the bees and Artemis. Sometimes you hear about bears with Artemis. Um, what you know, it, it, is there anything unique about the uh, that association between Artemis and the bees? Well, she's often referred to as the bee. The bee. And, yes. And 
I guess because of my focus, her connection to the bees is more primary than the connection to the bears. But um, there, I, and I'll have this in the slide presentation, but there are some beautiful representations of Artemis with bees on her on the body of her sculpt, you know, the yeah, sculpture yeah. of her yeah, her so body. Torso, yeah. And there's an amazing movie made by German filmmakers, documentary that I've never been able to get my hands on about Artemis that's called The Bee. So really? I don't know how to find that. Yeah, it's I just, in German? I mean, with It uh, must be I've come across the information about it, but I've never been actual able to actually We're going to have to hunt for that. (laughs) You know what? You know, I haven't hunted for it in a couple of years. You know, and every time I go back to hunt for things now, there's so much more online. There's so many more ways Well, now, isn't there something about the beehive also, um, the the way they, you know, it's, it's, it's mecha- it, 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 it's designed uh, the way it's organized. That's the word I wanted. The way it, the way it's organized. Uh, I, I think someone told me that it's it seems like it's matriarchal in its in its workings and its it hierarchy or whatever. Is. It absolutely is. There is a queen that lays all the eggs there, and the when an older queen dies or when the hive has too many bees and they have to split off and swarm, then the worker bees that are all female know to make um, a certain kind of comb. And then a regular egg, you know, is in laid in there, but then royal jelly is put in there. And that creates a queen, a new queen. And they usually do more than one queen cone at a time, but it's usually the first one to hatch out. She normally, they fight to the death, the new queens. And there'll be one, one, you know, queen left. But Deborah's had some amazing things. She's had two or three queens survive and sort of, She'll have to talk about that in the series. That's okay. more technical and more. And she's got recordings of these cries of these queen uh, bees. They, they sort of have like a little warrior cry when they hatch out. Wow. And they need a very strong queen, you know. And um, so, yes, and then the drones are there to fertilize the queen. Um, they don't live through that process. And normally they're also, um, you know, expelled from the hive after their their point of usefulness okay. going into the winter. But, yes, and so a lot of people think that that was the basis for the organization of some of the ancient temple complexes. And, you know, Artemis was uh, very indigenous to what we now call Turkey, the ancient Anatolian uh, right, exactly. culture. Right, exactly. And also that's where one of the main other bee goddesses and frame drum goddesses, Chabeli, is from. Now, Artemis is not uh, depicted with a frame drum. I have never seen her depicted with a frame drum. But the thing about the frame drum is it was used in all the ancient mystery schools. You know, for uh, Persephone and Demeter and Dionysius and Ariadne and um, Aphrodite and Adonis and all the great mystery school, Isis and Osiris, 
the frame drum was used to create the trance in which people had this symbolic death and rebirth experience. And if you think about the hive, it's a it's a it's a, a huge womb, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it it goes on and on even as the bees come into existence and have their short lives and pass yes, away. Yes, the cycles the of life you see play out. Yeah. Yes, it, I mean that's traditionally. Of course, now we're having these failures of the hive and in Western North Carolina. Where, where there are many, many beekeepers, uh, it was 90 to 99% rate of death of hives this year. So, you know, our main beekeepers, natural beekeepers, would lose 20 out of 21 hives. So it was a disastrous year this year. So, Will, can, 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 the, it, you know, can the bees recover from that? Well, it depends on what kind of changes we're willing to make. They're... Um, it's controversial, but I believe that it's kept controversial. There are a type of um, pesticides. Um, not know if I'm going to remember to say it appropriately or not. Nicotinoids, something like that. I. Um, it's a very dangerous kind of pesticide that it treats the seeds. So then the entire plant is toxic. So it's not like spraying a plant. Bees, you know, ha- there are die-offs of bees that go to freshly sprayed uh, plants, but they die right there. But it, with these new types of uh, toxic pesticides built into the seed, the entire plant is toxic, the pollen, the nectar. And so they we're bring poison it, in the bees. They bring it back to the hive, and the hive becomes poisonous. Now, these um, types of pesticides have been banned in France and Germany and possibly it was just banned in the UK. Are those Monsanto um, products? No, it's Bayer and they are located in um, Raleigh, Durham area in North Carolina but it's a huge corporation mm-hmm. and there are some suits against them at this time. I don't know what's going to happen. To The United States is behind Europe for sure and, this, yeah. and once again this is Deborah's forte, not mine. I'm, okay. You know, I'm feel poorly well, you know that I'm not remembering could... the exact name of this class of pesticides. But when she's when she's back in the country and uh, you guys have your dates and everything together, why don't you both come back on the show for oh, you know, fifteen or twenty minutes and we oh, can just great. go ahead and and recap, um, you know, your curriculum that's coming up. Yeah, because my focus is on the ancient symbols. And these practices that have survived in India, the the Brahmari pranayamas, the mantra, the bee goddess that you were playing before, which is hring, and um, like the yantras, the drawing of the bee goddess. And that's going to all be in your uh, in in your online uh, intensive yeah. as well. Yes. Good, good, yeah. good. Well, um, Wayne, why don't you go ahead and give listeners your website so that uh, they can be looking at this stuff until we can get you and Deborah back on. Thank you so much, Karen. So the the best place to go for this is thebeepriestess.com. You can watch the introductory uh, broadcast. And, um, you know, whether people can tune in exactly at the time that we broadcast, it won't matter because it will be available. We don't know how long it will be. We're going to put it up and keep it available to the students that are studying it, but it will be up at least two weeks. 
you know, okay. it, it'll you know it'll be up for people to be able to see it because there are people around the world, especially you know in Turkey, and she has a many students in Turkey, and I have many students in Cyprus, you know. So there are people that can't watch it at the time that right. will be broadcasting. It'll be I think we broadcast it uh, from seven to nine. Well, you one know, of the websites she said is bepriestess.com, right? Yes, and then um, it's not up on my schedule, but I should put it up soon, which is laneredmond.com. And then yeah, there's Holy Bee, Holy Bee Press, that's, that's Deborah's? Deborah's, yes, holybeepress.com, okay. that's her website. Okay. Well, Lane, thank you for uh, telling us a little bit about the program. It sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, listening myself. Well, and, we, you uh, are going to be our honored guests, so oh, we're very you. excited that you'll be hear, hearing it. Well, I'm about to tell listeners about the bees buzzing round in my bonnet. <laughs> so if, if, um, if, if you want to listen, uh, feel free to. Uh, otherwise, get in touch and let me know when uh, you guys want to come back on. Okay, darling. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Good night. All right. Well, listeners, talking about the bees buzzing in my bonnet, I... Uh, gave you some hints of what I wanted to talk about uh, at the opening of the show before my conversation was known. And um, first of all, let me tell you that uh, from this information is out from the Women's Ordination Conference. Um, they call it the Catholic Tipping Point, Conversations with Father Helmut Schuler. Uh, there's uh, there's going to actually be a 15-city national speaking tour this summer, and it's called uh, His Call to Disobedience, um, which uh, that's what it's going to be about. This call to disobedience was signed by a majority of Austrian priests, uh, has brought worldwide attention and momentum to addressing the crisis in the Catholic Church. Um, Father Helmut Schuler leads a practical movement that recognizes the Holy Spirit among the laity and calls for inclusive and transparent changes to church government, including women, lesbian, gay, trans, bi persons, and married priests. So uh, this is going to be July 16th to August 6th in cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Portland, L.A., Diego, Denver, Cincinnati, Detroit, Cleveland, Seattle, Manhasset, New York. So for more information about the call to disobedience, uh, go to catholictippingpoint.org. That's catholictippingpoint.org. Also, um, I want you to know about the popular resistance website. Uh, this, um, this came out from uh, Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers, who write for Alternet. They uh, were also uh, part of um, uh, the folks uh, that uh, did the Occupy-like uh, encampments. Uh, they are telling folks to uh, go sign up uh, to this website called uh, popularresistance.org. They've just launched this. Uh, it's uh, a new platform to connect and build mass popular resistance uh, that's growing in the United States. It pro provides daily movement news and resources to keep you informed about actions and events and to provide you with tools for organizing in your community. So popularresistance.com. Take a look. Uh, I looked at it um, in the last few days, and there's lots uh, lots of good stuff there. Um, also, uh, it is a, 
as, as you would expect, uh, Republicans are at it again. Uh, the Daily Coast reported that, uh, and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, told us that um, you know Republicans are, are at their height of hypocrisy. And uh, one example is Republican Representative Steve Fincher. Um, he voted to cut food stamps while personally taking millions in federal farm subsidies. Uh, Congressman Stephen Fincher from Tennessee, a Republican, uh, ranted from the House floor that the poor should starve and we shouldn't spend other people's money for them, to feed them. But he's also a farmer who gets $3.5 million in subsidies from the federal government. And the farm bill that House Republicans, including Fincher, support would increase Farm subsidies by nine billion dollars, while cutting food stamps by 21 billion over the next 10 years. Yep, that's what they're up to. Um, also, Monsanto uh, wanted to mention uh, this in case you didn't know. Um, you probably are aware of the campaigns uh, against Monsanto that took place all around the country, uh, actually all around the globe. Well. Uh, in case you didn't know, they spent $6 million on lobbying, and their payoff was something called the Monsanto Protection Act, which was written anonymously, passed in secret, and allows Monsanto to keep selling genetically engineered seeds, even if a federal court says they may pose a health risk. Well, now Monsanto has sneaked an amendment into the farm bill that could block GMO labeling moving forward in states like Vermont and Connecticut. Um, this this is this is this is not good. Uh, there's been a massive backlash against Monsanto, but you know they're infiltrated pretty good. They're in Obama's cabinet. They're in the FDA. Um, we will have to follow them closely and practice our popular resistance. Now there was um, some possible good news on the front with Monsanto. There were a few news agencies that said, uh, at least over in Europe, the uh, tipping point uh, has been reached and uh, we might be able to overcome global food injustice. Uh, what that's about uh, is it seems like Monsanto uh, has backed off now. Uh, the article says they're in full retreat against a global grassroots rejection of its poison and lies. The company is backpedaling on every front now and even uh, admitting defeat in Europe and now trying to focus his last desperate efforts in the U.S. and Brazil. But even in the Americas, Monsanto is losing on every front. GMO labeling legislation is cropping up in over a dozen states. The Global March demonstrated global grassroots unity against GMOs, and even the so-called science behind the safety of GMOs is revealed as utter hogwash now that GMOs have escaped Monsanto's experimental wheat fields and contaminated commercial wheat crops in America. So anyway, uh, keep following the story on Monsanto. Um, I don't know if this is disinformation to make us think we've won and distract us to go on to other things, um, but uh, you know these are people that need to be watched and uh, these are people that we need to uh, make sure we keep in check because we need to know what we're eating. Uh, also, some good news. The Supreme Court refused to hear Planned Parenthood defunding case. 
Uh, Tuesday, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal by the state of Indiana over the blocking of a law that would ban Planned Parenthood from receiving Medicaid funding. The court dismissed the case without comment, allowing the lower court ruling to stand. Last July, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the Indiana law violates federal law, which requires the Medicaid enrollees have the freedom to choose their health care provider and permanently block this enforcement. The law, which was passed by the Republican-controlled state legislature and signed into law by Governor Mitch Daniels, another Republican, in 2011, would have prohibited the state from contracting Planned Parenthood of Indiana for health services other than abortions, despite Planned Parenthood using private funds to pay for abortion services. It would also prevented Planned Parenthood from receiving Medicaid funding for preventative health care services such as cancer screenings, well women visits, and um, STI tests. The law would have also prevented Medicaid recipients who went to Planned Parenthood from being reimbursed through their insurance for services rendered. Supporters of the ban argued that allowing Medicaid funding for preventative services indirectly provided more organizational money to fund abortions. Cecile Richards, president of Planned Parenthood, told reporters um, yesterday's announcement from the Supreme Court is not only a victory for Planned Parenthood's patients in Indiana, it's a victory for nearly 30 million people who turn to Planned Parenthood health centers each year across the country. In 2013 legislative season, seven new states have tried to defund Planned Parenthood. Similar measures in Tennessee, <coughs> excuse me, North Carolina, Kansas, Arizona have also been blocked by judges. However, efforts to restrict funding in Oklahoma and Texas were more successful. So we keep up on this. I know Rachel Maddow is a good um, uh, resource for uh, finding out about, uh, you know, these, these women's issues. And finally, in El Salvador, Supreme Court denies life-saving abortion. The Supreme Court of El Salvador ruled in a four-to-one decision to deny a life-saving abortion to a woman with an unviable pregnancy. That means the baby had no chance of being born alive and healthy. Uh, Beatriz is the name that they're giving to the young woman in question, uh, is currently 22, already the mother of a young infant, was diagnosed with multiple severe illnesses, including kidney failure and lupus, and is now 26 weeks pregnant. The fetus will not survive more than a few days outside the womb, if at all, due to severe fetal abnormality where part of the brain does not develop. Doctors fear that if she continues with the pregnancy, Beatriz could lose her life. However, abortion under any circumstance is illegal in El Salvador, and abortion without approval from the Supreme Court could result in up to 10 years in jail for aggravated homicide. In their ruling, the judges wrote, quote, this court determines that the rights of the mother cannot take precedence over those of the unborn child or vice versa, and that there is an absolute bar to authorizing an abortion as contrary to the constitutional protection accorded to human persons from the moment of conception, unquote. The one dissenting judge, Florentine Melendez, argued that the court needed to affirm Beatrice's request to guarantee that the medical per personnel would not omit any treatments and would act diligently at all times without having to recur to legal authorization to protect the life of the mother and the human being she is carrying in her womb. 
Victor Hugo Mata, Beatrice's lawyer, told reporters, we cannot appeal the case because this was the last step in the Supreme Court. The only way now is to go to the international courts, but every day the health of Beatrice is getting worse. If they wait another week or two, she will be too feeble to endure the operation. And as I said earlier, you may or may not know that there are Republican Congresses across the United States that would like to do the very same thing here. So we need to be aware. The war on women continues everywhere. Well, please listen to this, a word from Joe Carson and Dancing with Gaia. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chronic mind the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected, they were together. But there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. That was some of the language from the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, a feature documentary about Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. It is a great and sincere and beautiful film that goes deep into the connections between these important topics. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page mini-book that expands on the material of the film, and you can find out more information or get it at dancingwithgaia.com. Uh, if you're new to the show, um, I do do public service announcements here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine as well as paid commercials to help defray the cost of airtime because we do not yet have a sponsor, which we're looking for. And if uh, you can continue to help me pay for airtime, that would be fantastic. Remember, as Gaia teaches us, what we care for and nurture, it thrives. What we neglect, well, it tends to wither. You can make a contribution to the cost of the show by going to my webpage at uh, karentate.com. When you're there, check out the Goddess Store page, scroll down to the bottom, see the PayPal buttons, make a donation of any amount. And while you're there, check out the free stuff you'll find throughout my website. There are meditations, articles, classes, um, there's things on my YouTube channel I think you'll enjoy. You know, every now and again I remind listeners of uh, this small request from me. I hope you don't mind if I ask again and maybe continue to do so for a time until I feel like I've gotten the word out. Um, I am really trying to sell out my remaining copies of Sacred Places of Goddess. If you're thinking about a gift for yourself or a friend or would like a one-of-a-kind book in your library that tells about ancient and living traditions of goddess and her sacred sites all around the world and how to get there if you're an actual traveler, please help me sell out the remaining copies. Purchase them from any local bookseller or, better yet, directly from me right there on my website, KarenTate.com. Uh, on my Goddess Store page, I sell the books at a better price than you can get them new from the online sellers. Or make a donation, and if you say it's for uh, a worthy cause, tell me, and I will send it uh, to that cause in your name. Um, Let's see, what else do I want to share with you tonight? Um, I want to let you know that uh, next week uh, I will be interviewing Lisa Corbeil about lists 
lithotherapy. What is lithotherapy? That's a strange word. Well, that is working with stones and crystals. So that should be interesting. And uh, uh, for for those of us who are um, tuned into Earth Energies, and also Reverend Lorian Vignier of the Temple of Isis and Fellowship of Isis is going to be with us uh, talking about her new book, The 42 Ideals of Ma'at. Uh, don't miss it, and um, if you haven't clicked on the follow button on my show page, please do it now. Don't rely on getting a reminder email from me about the show. Um, also, too, uh, I would sure appreciate it if you would go to my new blog and subscribe. Uh, it's on Blogger, and it's called Herstory with Karen Tate. Um, you will soon be able to find a link to it from my website, karentate.com. Uh, and you know what? Uh, please like my Voices of the Sacred Feminine radio page on Facebook. That would be awesome. And I want to say thanks again to all you, uh, you listeners out there helping the show continually break records for the most downloads uh, and listens. Well, as we come to the close of tonight's show, I want uh, you to remember something very important, lest we uh, ever forget. Adversaries of the sacred feminine tried to sweep away awareness and knowledge of her for all time. And with that sweeping away, when the great she was made to disappear because of the religion of patriarchy, of selfish and disconnected men and their war gods, well, women, their power, their leadership, their spiritual authority were thwarted, repressed, became taboo, diminished, disrespected. We still see it out there everywhere today. That's why here on the show I'm dedicated to recovering the great she, whether she be deity, archetype, or ideal, as I know you are too. Yes, we intend to defy, to taste the forbidden fruit, to be powerful and uppity women and men, to throw off the shackles and look under every rock, behind every locked door, peer into the abyss of the past so we know why things are the way they are, how they have come to be turned on their head and so unnatural. And we are going to go about setting things right. Why? Well, if we want to save ourselves and Mother Earth, our beloved Gaia, then we have no other choice. If we want to live in a world of balance, harmony, wholeness, sanity, equality, fairness, partnership, well, women and our like-minded brothers armed with ideals of the sacred feminine, we're the ones that's left to us to set things back on course. So find your sacred roar. Find it. And let me once again repeat what have become the mottos of the show. The first from uh, Gandhi. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And from the German philosopher, author Schopenhauer, all truth passes through three stages. First it's ridiculed, second it's violently opposed, and third it is accepted for being self-evident. Well, uh, remember, check out my website, please. Uh, I am available to come give a talk to your group or teach a weekend workshop. There's also lots of free stuff there. Uh, learn about my two books. Check out my goddess greeting cards. Uh, I also sell Sistra, which are sacred rattles of the Egyptian goddesses. We have them there in the goddess store. And uh, as I said, uh, please remember what Mother Nature teaches us. What you nurture and tend to survives and thrives. What you neglect withers on the vine. That goes for every facet of your life, your health, your work, your passion, your love, your family. 
Well, um, good night, my dear listeners, my friends, my fans, my family and colleagues. Uh, please continue to send your emails. Uh, tell me what you think. Send me uh, ideas for guests. Uh, tell me how much the show means to you because you are gas in my tank. So as we close the show tonight, uh, I think uh, we will play Nariani by Diva Haley. I think you'll really enjoy this. And until next week... May Goddess embrace you in her golden wings. Good night.